Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Billy Moore Podcast. And today's special guest is Kevin Lane. Kevin, how are you, mate? Thank you very much, Billy. Thank, thank you, you for, for inviting me up to Liverpool. Oh, thank you for coming. So, let's start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll get into what's been going on recently. Okay, so uh, I start. Of, I, I'm an ex-lifer, but uh, I go back to the beginning. So, I grew up in a place called Harefield, Middlesex. Look, it's a country village. A lot of people might know it for Hereford Heart Transplant. Yeah. Uh, it was well known for that back in the day. So I grew up in a village that was notorious for pub crawls. Beautiful village, idyllic, nice place to go to school. I mean, we had our own farm on our school. Not many people can say that, can they? We yeah. used to tend. Yeah. So you're seeing chickens and lambs and pigs and cows and all sorts, you know, being born and hatched. It was great. Um... Loved it, loved growing up there in the countryside, apart from, I've just done some filming there and it was in relation to, and my first job I had when I was, a real job was a 12 year old boy in a paper shop. You remember, you probably had it yourself, Billy. Mm. And then from there we went to, I went to the bakers. Uh, from the bakers I went to the chip shop and then at 14 I went to a, a local builder. But uh, doing that filming took me back to when I grew up and, they were difficult, difficult times for a young kid in terms of what was available now to... Oh, uh, yeah, definitely, yeah. ...to what we had then. So I had to bike uphill a good half a mile or more in any north, east, south or west, depending on which way you came to the village, uphill. And I'm on about big hills. Mm. And then you're going down country lanes where there's no lights. So it, you're growing up in a real rural area. And I'm going to be honest with you, you needed a bravery award to do the paper round. Yeah. <laughs> So I grew up there, uh, loved it, always worked, I'm hard grafter, I think you put a good day's grafting, you get um, more than a decent reward back in the pocket, it's what you get back in yourself, mm. structure and... Let's pull up a bit here, make sure... Yep, yeah. so I grew up there, I worked hard, um, a bit of a fighting man's village in its day, not that I was like that, but... They used to have SPG vans in the village parked up because of the pub crawls. You've got an idyllic, beautiful little village and there's massive punch-ups on a Friday and Saturday yeah. night. That's <laughs> bizarre, isn't it? <laughs> bizarre, you're going, of course, it's what life's Pit, all about. Picturesque, postcard kind of village and then you've got <laughs> loads of battles going on. Blokes taking their tops off. I fight the hardest man in there because there's loads of travellers out there. Yeah. Boy. So I've grown up around a lot of travellers yeah. and uh, traveller sites and that. But yeah, it is, it is beautiful. I... I went to John Penrose and then Academy. I got expelled from there. Just, uh, I was a very boisterous young man. Mm. Too much energy. So in, the, in that I would play sport, anything I could do, whether it was carrying a golf bag, just to walk around the golf course, to turning up at the men's cricket team, the third team at 12 years old to get a game. I like the cakes and the, and the sandwiches and all. As a kid, you do, <laughs> didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> so I used to get a game because there's always a short of a play or two in men's thirds, especially on a, a Saturday or a Sunday night when they've been out drinking. Yeah. Played cricket. But, you know, 12-year-old boys facing a, a, a ball that's coming at you at 100 miles an hour, hit by a grown man. Yeah. It's a bit frightening, and I remember that as well. But I used to, I was very active playing sport, but like I said, I got expelled. Um see a child psychologist says there's nothing wrong with him he's just very energetic mm. now you get a kid nowadays and they're beyond uh, Rohypnil or whatever yeah. they're blimmin sticking into him you know and like, it's, I think that's wrong I think you just need to give kids structure and, and let them use their energies in the right place yeah they act a little bit differently from everyone else and they're being labelled with all kinds of ADHD and yeah. you know autism and putting on the spectrum and I see my brother's got autism so I know what like difficulties people are against up against very difficult I've mm. seen loads of kids at the minute I mean and I think that is absolutely I I would have been on if they had a good got it in me tablets as a child and there's nothing wrong with me it's my mate mm. <laughs> so I went I went expelled started working at uh, 14, 15 with Josh Clack local builder uh, loved working with him from there I did an apprentice carpentry in Brick Lane course at Southall College I uh, worked with various builders, uh, fashionist joinery, it was a big company back in this day. Uh, part of Taylor Woodrow they were, or you know, Taylor Woodrow still going. So at 18, 
Um, I, I was pretty much qualified on the tools because I've been working on them since I was 14 on yeah. sites and that. So when I got expelled, I got four days work release, which was lovely because by then I'd moved into my own flat with a pal of mine who was 18. Mm. Um, I suppose 10 a week rent, which is nothing, was it, you think of today's? No. You know, fuck all. So <laughs> obviously catering for yourself and doing your cooking and washing. But that was okay because I've got a large family anyway. I've got plenty of brothers. I've got two, two brothers and sisters, uh, two brothers and four sisters. And I'm the seventh one. Uh, so you're used to fending for yourself or... Was you the youngest? Second eldest. Second eldest. I was the oldest. I had a six. I don't know what it's like to have a big family, but yeah. especially when you're the oldest and you've got to look after f five younger siblings. Mum, he's got my shirt on. Yeah. Where's my jeans gone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's Nick my trainers? Yeah, oh, first yeah. up, best dressed. That was the, the rule in our house. Ooh. Grab what you can. So uh, I moved into a flat at 15. I was working with Josh Clack, like I say then. So I had four days work release from school. I used to get t paid £10 a day. And then from every night I finished working with Josh, I went straight into the chip shop. So I worked Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday morning in the chip shop. Mm. Uh, Saturday night I went out. And then I opened up the chip shop on a Sunday because Sunday laws came into operation back at that time. Uh, and I was allowed to open up the chip shop. And he trusted me. Ian, who used to own the chip shop. And again, it's in, the, it's in a village where it's quite boisterous. So men are coming into the chip shop after a few beers and that. And I'm opening it on my own. Mm. But at that stage, at that time, all the lads in the village knew me. The older blokes knew me. Obviously, I was living in a, in a flat at the time. I crossed paths with a few of them growing up as a kid. And, uh, you know, took a few slaps off of them. As a, you know, you do when you're bleeding at eight yeah, or nine. Yeah. And they're bleeding... 18 and 19, <coughs> rag you about, throwing you about, you throw a few punches back, but yeah. you ain't getting in there, are you? You're just yeah. ragging you about, yeah. isn't they? <laughs> <laughs> and then, but by the time I got to 15, I was holding my own with most of them, you know? Yeah. I'd very, I just had very fast hands as a kid. And uh, that gave me a bit of respect. And so when they came into the shop, so I was all right, Kevin, and hello, you all right, lads, and serving the fish and chips, what I liked. Seeing you a little bit differently because you've yeah. seen what you, you're about. Yeah, and if I couldn't handle all of them, I had a big pan of fat here. Yeah. So they're like, don't be coming around here, lads. <laughs> Fucking, they behaved themselves. So it did seem a bit differently, yeah. But I went from there, uh, 18. I bought my first flat at 18. Obviously, I was working hard all the time. Buying and selling, I started buying and selling cars. Uh, I bought my first flat, like I say, when I was 18. Which is young, young for uh, to be starting buying property. Well, it just sounds like you've had a, like a different pathway you come to Michelle for really. It's like you, you're hard working, working class, and you, you know you're active in that area. Yeah. Was, you know, I was down like the wrong route from an early age, so you know the path for me was obviously like destined for for, for prison. And I've always liked work, though, Billy. I've yeah. never, I'm not, you know, I duck and dive, but. I'd buy a bit of bleeding nicked gear and sell it, you know, or bleeding. I know uh, a vicar that used to buy knocked off booze or knocked off fags, yeah. you know, the cheap gear. You know, that's a vicar. So everybody likes a bit of knockoff, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> uh, a little bit of cheaply. A little che bit of cheaper. Yeah, yeah. So buying it, I used to do the snide clothes and the snide yeah. watches and all stuff like that. I mean, I had my own school uniform when I was 12 that I purchased and I had a different uniform, a different set of trousers, shirt and cardigan and... Uh, or different watch for five days a week going to school at 12 that I was purchasing myself. So mm. I was providing for myself at a young man's age. And I thrived on that. And then I went forward in that manner, which is why I say work's good. It's good for kids. And yeah. it, what goes on here at uh, is, uh, DHT Construction. DCU's. DCU's yeah. Construction. Yeah. I mean, it's great what you've got going for the young kids here and that. And I think there was more of that. There'd be less kids going to prison. Yeah. Obviously, that's your insight, isn't it? So... I had that path anyway, going for my own fruition, not through being pushed in that direction by anybody. Yeah. I, like to, I like to find that there's a pal note and see things. Yeah. And I can see way before the recycling rubbish came in, I was setting up a yard in 1991 to do that. Yeah. Uh, camera security. I bought a security company when I was at, uh, just after 19, and I paid £5,000 for it at the time. Changed the name. So realistically, I just 
what I bought was nothing because I changed the name anyway. Mm. Um, and I bought that to as a stepping stone into camera security. And look where camera security is now. Yeah. So you're talking 34 yeah. years ago. I was do, I was looking to do the camera security, but I got banged up for a kidnapping. Mm. Um, a little while after that, I ended up working all the doors and the clubs. I wasn't old enough to be in half the bleeding doors, and people thought I was the manager. So I'd come up to them, eleven stone seven. I was boxing yeah. a bit, you know, and uh, doing a lot more sparring than anything else because I was ended up working in nightclubs in the night, working for myself in the daytime. You're not really getting much training in, and when you do, you're half the bleeding sleep. Yeah, yeah. So. Ended up working the clubs, buying and selling cars and properties. I was a very busy young man at a very young age. What was bringing? What brought the um, your, your attention? What the, the law to your attention? What was what was going on behind the scenes that sort of contributed to you getting arrested and locked up for kidnapping? And because it doesn't seem like the path you were on was going. You know. I'm proud to say that when I did my sentence, I would get 250, 300 Christmas cards a year. Yeah. And there's a lot of lads up here from this neck of the woods that I, I know yeah. and got a lot of time for. And they they can verify. I'm not only to tell any lies or big No, I know, mate, mate knows yeah. you. Yeah. Scouts, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, was, yeah. Okay. And the dispersals. Yeah. Speak shyly of you, to be fair. Oh, thank you. That's very decent. I won't ask if you're on camera. Oh, John, John, John Murray, you might know him. Yeah, I do, yeah. He was the last one uh, from the Strange Ways route with uh, Alan yeah. Rose, he was, yeah. Him, him and Alan Lord and the boys yeah. up there, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. Kevin Brown yeah. and uh, Dave Judd. Yeah. So Dave he, Judd used to opposite me. He, um, he was he, he speaking to you. I said I was getting Kevin on. He, you know, he spoke highly of you. So. Where is he now? Is he in... Um... John's here. He's in Liverpool. He's oh, doing really he? well. Oh, works good. with um, Works with like interventions with kids and you know, oh, crime, gang crime and life crime, gang culture, all that. So he's, yeah, yeah, he's doing something positive for the community. Give him our best, please. Yeah. I might see him next time I come back up. Yeah. So we'll be coming back up. But I, I've lost my pattern of thought now. So it's Christmas cards. People thinking of yeah. Yeah, I was well thought of in the prison system for just you know I didn't bother no one. I say don't tread on my toes, and I won't stamp on yours. Leave me alone. I'll leave yeah. you alone. And I used to have time for people, Billy. Like the, yeah. the people who would you would never expect to talk to. I would talk to because I find people interesting. Yeah. So I've just had a recent recall, which I'll go into shortly, but. I found talking to this fella called Brucey. He was from South Africa, right? Yeah. But he liked a bit. He liked partying a bit. So yeah. I like, listen. That's his way. But I liked him, Brucey. I could yeah. see he had a good heart. Yeah. I mean, he dived off the nets, Billy. Off the fees landing onto the nets. Bang! Smashed. He had all wire all over his face like markings. You know, survived it. And he went to do it again. I said, Bruce, you got to stop all that. Got talking to him. He'd done hard labour back in the day in South Africa where the Riding around on horses and guns and stuff like that, you know. And I find people fascinating. Yeah, it's a different experience, isn't it? Prisons abroad when um, you hear stories and you think, well, you know, we're not that bad over here. In the sense of, like, oh, hard labour. Look what you've been through. Yeah. You know, yeah. So like, we've got it bleeding easy, all these TVs and crap they have nowadays. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's as hard as it is for the patient at the time. But without that experience, you think, yeah, you yeah. know, you can't compare it. I could never compare yeah. being banged up aboard, but talking to people and you can hear things. You know, they were chopping down trees with axes. Yeah, and if he didn't graft, then that's you know. And, they, and you don't I, get fed either. Oh, he yeah. said that, that what they got extra money was. Well, you never got yeah. fed out there, I'd imagine, apart from what you might eat off the bleeding floor or cockroaches. We were getting fed by uh, something called Prisoners Abroad, which is yeah, a, um, a charity organisation in the UK. Okay. That were uh, supplying us protein tablets, uh. vitamins, multivitamins, which at the time I was selling to, to purchase drugs because I couldn't face reality and I wanted yeah, to escape yeah. like, like the judgments of everything and I'd use just to avoid, but I was neglecting my own health. Yeah, yeah. You know, and personal kind of hygiene around a lot of things until I sort of woke up. Because you hear all the stories over there about you starving and that, don't you? Yeah. I mean, you, you can't, you know, you don't actually starve. I mean, it, it, to a point where you, you, you're dying, of star but you're, you, you know, hunger. Yeah, yeah. Hunger is, is quite, um, it's, a, it's a motivational, it's very motivating. <laughs> you know, you can motivate yourself to do things for food. If you're cold or hungry, yeah. you become very angry or very desperate. Yeah, that's what they say. Yeah, and yeah. I've said that for years, especially when you're in the segregations, in the blocks. Cold or hungry can make you an angry man very quickly. And lonely. Hung There's something called holes in it. Hungry, angry, lonely inside. Now, I've all them at once. 
you're not the best you're not um you're not performing very well are you you know but you know what you might i don't mind my own company or i mm. love people if you could if you're a very popular person in prison you can, you can have everybody else's problems yeah and if you're not so popular <coughs> you've only got your own problems to worry about yeah so i noticed that when i was away but um like I said, I went to prison. I was well-liked as a young man growing up and I would always help someone. Oh, yeah, bleeding. Such and such is giving him a good idea. I thought, cheeky bastard, or a couple of fellas might have set about someone. And uh, I didn't mind a tear up back in the day, yeah. you know. I thought, well, I didn't, not, I wasn't know looking for it, but I'd certainly go and help yeah. a pal if I had a bit of ag. My brother was always getting in trouble, even my older brother. So I had a few problems with that as a kid, trying to look after him. Um, I'd go down the gym and fight. I don't need to fight on the street. Yeah. When I was 18, I started working the doors, which led me to buy the security company. I thought, I'm not going down the pubs. I didn't drink at the time. I was training and such, boxing, like I say. So I'm not going down the pubs to fight and not get paid for it. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah. what for? And, yeah. you know, the mother of my children at the time, Kim, she used to attract a lot of attention because she was a pretty girl. And I used to look like a bleeding college boy from the countryside. So, and there was only, I was only 11 stone seven. There wasn't much of me. So you're off that, you know, young kids, yeah. it brings problems, didn't it, that age? They all want to prove themselves yeah. and such. So uh, I started working in nightclubs and that. And then with that, I got a few nickings on the doors. Because you'll always get some clown who, who will either, he's had too much to drink or he look at you and think you're an idiot and if I punch him, he miss and you'll hit him. And next thing you know, you've broke his jaw or, you know, you've defended yourself. And I will state, Bill, for the record, yeah. we're there to restrain people, not to give them good hidings. But you sometimes you have to hit a person. If they throw punches at you, you've got to beat them back. Back in the day, that was, of course. Yeah, it's different, it's different back then, isn't it? Different then. And, you yeah. know, back then, the places that had security needed security. Now it's just pretty much across the board where most places have security anyway to take... Because a, a doorman is to take care of its... Uh, clients yeah you're there to take care of them you're not there to manage the place and bash them up people lose sight of what they're yeah, really because there you, to they're do they're not going to be saying they're not going to be saying a back up you know you, you you know they're going to be losing money are they if, you, if customers aren't going to be arriving so you know what your your job is and the role is it's it's there to to protect the door but you've got to, you've got to protect yourself and protect the door but at the same yeah. time look after your customers and that's where people lose sight you're there yeah. to look after your clients yeah. Not bash the life out of them. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen a few people do that. Like. Oh, they still do it, you know. Yeah. But when I had my own security company, I said, listen, if you bash them up and I lose the contract for this place, you're not losing me £300 a week. You're losing me £1,200 a month, fourteen grand a year. Yeah. And I'll be upset if you do that to me. And I'll be coming to see you like you'll be coming to see me if I took the money out of your pocket. So we used to have regular staff meetings. and 120 blokes working for me at the time, which isn't a lot now in, in the figures. But then... It wasn't right across the board like the security is now. I mean, I know he's got 6,000 blokes on his books. I know a few security firms that have got big numbers, but yeah. they're doing different types of security as well. Um, but at the time, 120 full-time through Monday to Friday, and then obviously the club's open and it, it, it grows again. It was yeah. a lot for a young man. So that brought me to the attention of the police. Yeah. And then I went away for a kidnapping. I got nicked a few times for kidnapping. Well, they call captain, you know, you'd take someone away rough them up a bit or... See, people get the wrong impression of what kidnapping is, don't they? Do you think it's like, uh, like you're kidnapping someone for, you know... To, to, ransom. Yeah, for ransom. Like That's all like, you know, growing up, that, you know, you're like, that was like, whoa, kidnapping, yeah. ransoms and, you know, but some, when, when it's like, tell us about what happened. I've, uh, I can't go into all the details that's for fine, different various yeah. nickings yeah. I've had, but um, I did used to take people. I mean, I drove around the zoo once for a bloke in the boot of the car. Yeah. Right? It was a big bloke. He was six foot four. No, well, no you can't just pick your clients, can you? No. If someone's done something wrong, you know, I, I never used to say, when people used to say to me, I'd get a call right, yeah. before I purchased my own company. They'd say, Kevin, will you, uh, will you work tonight? Yeah, no problem. Where? But then I found when I had my own company, people would say, who with? And then they'd ask where. Yeah. You work in the bloody door. And I mean, I used to go, no, I work anywhere and I'd go anywhere. And like I say, you can't pick, can you? So if you're up for work, you've got to work. So uh, I kidnapped this, this fellow once. He was six foot four, but he'd done a few things wrong he shouldn't have done. Uh, again, what I did weren't right either. But back in the day, it was different. Mm. There, it, there was so much so like, oh yeah, he's hit my daughter. 
I'll get Ted to go around and give him a good hiding. Mm. That time, and there's still a bit of that now so much, but people yeah. are more inclined now to run to the police. Straight away. You're even getting kids saying to their parents, you hit me, I'll report you. Mm. Where's, it, where's it all gone mental? You know, the kids are managing the parents nowadays, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So that happened a few times, and then I, I didn't, I kidnapped fellow, this fellow once, and I'm just doing a bit of work with restorative justice. I got contact with them, and I thought, bloody hell. So I kidnapped this other fellow once. There was a gang of blokes who were nicking uh, some, um, not materials, they were nicking some bits and pieces off of my mate who had a factory. And the fellow that was handing them out was a storeman. And he was handing them out to a little football gang. At the time, as far as I was concerned, there was all one and the same. So I went to this building, pretty much like this big building, Kept everybody in it hostage till this fella turned up. Uh, they said, he's here, he's here. So I've gone out to the stairs, like we come up here. The fella's coming up the stairs. I've cracked him, right? Because there's no negotiating when you're taking someone away. Mm. I knocked the wrong fella out. Woke him up and said, I'm ever so sorry, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and I genuinely apologise to him, ever so sorry. I said, I'll tell you what, no hard feelings. You've probably got the ump. I says, you can have a bang back at me and nothing will happen to yeah. you. And he's looking at me thinking, you ain't real, mate. He's yeah. just looking at me, I said, I sit down there, making them all tea. But then I was running around like a blue-ass fly was, yeah. keeping them all happy. Got <laughs> <laughs> a cup of tea, doing a bit of coffee and all the rest of it. Anyway, this fellow turned up. So I did the same to him, took him away. What I did to him, I have to say, now looking back all these years later, was wrong, Billy. Mm. Because it turned out, this little gang, what they'd done, when they'd been nicking these machines off of my pal, they went to the police, the police didn't have enough evidence to nick them. And then the firm who was nicking it, the football little firm, they went to the girl informed on them and they threatened the girl with a knife and she had a baby with her. And they said, look, we're going to cut you, I'm going to cut your baby, they said. Mm. Flippant remark, nonetheless... My pal then come to me and said, listen, Kevin, this is what's happened. We've been to the old bill. The old bill ain't got enough evidence to nick them. They've now been back to the office again and they're banging on the doors. You've had to lock the doors. Can you do something about it? So that's the sort of thing I used to get involved in. Yeah. All right. But that would bring the police to my door eventually. Like time the equaliser. Well, I suppose. <laughs> Jelling light and dynamite. Take your pick because you're fucking going to sleep. Well, that's, that's what it is. Yeah. That's what you've got to give someone a call. Someone who's going to sort of stand in. Because it's, yeah, I get what you're saying, Kevin, on that. Sometimes the, the, the police cannot protect you. No. It doesn't matter with the best will in the world, okay? And there, there is a grey area there. And how many people will say to you, I'll kill you, touch my kids? Or they're in an area where the kids have had a good hiding from yeah. someone and the police can't do nothing. And that's what happened on this occasion. So I took this fellow away. I ran him over a few times and we bashed him up. I, you know, he, didn't, he was in hospital a week. He didn't even know his own bleeding name. Mm. He gave a phone number. Seven days or something after being in prison. Uh, being in hospital phoned up this number and they said look we've got someone here to give us a number do you know anyone who's missing I've gone of course and it all came out so he weren't the fella that put the knife to the girl but as far as I was concerned at the time he's part of that gang and I made yeah. him take us to where they lived and give me their addresses and phone numbers I mean he had no option when a car's running over your legs a lot of people they will uh, give you what you need to know um, but now it's now transpired from restorative justice that he was just the store man and now I feel like I, I did what I did to the wrong person I should have done it to the fellow who put the knife to the girl yeah. and I'd stand here and sit here now and turn around and say he bleeding deserved it and would I do it again well in my head I'd do it again <laughs> whether I'd physically go and do it again yeah. is another matter I mean I get it all the time, as you probably do, Billy. People phone you up and, oh, yeah. can you go and have... No, I can't. I'm sorry. I can't do that. And, you know, you just got to bat them off, haven't you? Yeah. So the police started coming to my door through that. Um, and then I got a nick for a murder. i never forget. Let me just tell you a story. My best mate, Marcus Lemaire and Dave Wolf, they're two white-cracking fellas. And I got nicked for a kidnapping once, another one. And the old Bill said, if Lane's there... Le Maire's there. Nick him. <laughs> so my pal was getting nicked every time I got nicked because as far as the old Bill concerned, he was with me mm. and he weren't sometimes. So he, I was ending up with my mum with him and he's going, like, I remember going to the police station he's going, what the fuck have you done now? Like, at least got my mind with me for four months. And that was on the on that kidnapping I just told you about. He got bail in the end because he yeah. obviously weren't there but he'd done four months for nothing. And uh, I'll never forget it. It was... Uh, 
it's mad he can say some of the best times of my life. It's yeah. crazy as it is. But yeah, I don't know. I understand what you're saying. Bring you back to ground level. Yeah. What's really important, where, you know, just, it's only those that have done time would understand. You realise what gratitude is and, you know, what you take for granted a lot at the time, which is, um, you know, it's your liberty. Your liberty. You know, that's the biggest. She, you know, the loss of family and the loss of friends mm. and the longing and then all that. So it, there's a lot of reflection there. For me, it was anyway. Kevin, it seems like the same for yourself. It's like, you know, it's like that old saying, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. Oh, God. Yeah. And you appreciate people's generosity and kindness from taking yeah. the time to come and see you. And you think about what they've gone through, taking the time to write to you. Yeah. Send you some stamps or whatever they do. And I've never forgot that, Billy, you know. Yeah. Never. Never forgot it. I'll tell you a quick little story, right? So I got banged up for this kidnapping, right? And I'll smile about it now, not for the sense I think it is, you know, I'm laughing at the, the content of what happened. Yeah. So, Marcus, we got nicked on this kidnapping. Again, Lane's early mayor's there. We're in the police station. So these are some of the best times. I laugh about them now, is the point I make. Yeah. So we're exercising in the police station inside the middle of it. So it's just a square block. There's only bricks. You can't get out. You're not no Spider-Man. Yeah. He's got one of my suits on, so I always wear suits, mate. I've worn them since I was a kid. Yeah. I like wearing suits. He's got one of my <coughs> suits on, I've got a suit on. The door's open. Now, my best mate, he don't tell you when he wants to do something. He just gets it in his head, starts twitching a bit, and he knows something wrong. So, all right, in you two. I ain't coming in, he says. I thought, well, you ain't told me. What's going on here? Come on, don't mess with it. In you come. I ain't coming in, he says. I haven't said nothing in front of the, the copper, so the door's shut. He's gone, all right then, no problem. He shut the door. Next thing you know, you hear doors slamming and people running up and down the stairs. I said, what's the matter with you? I ain't going in. Why aren't you going in? Because I don't fucking want to go in, he says, right? Mm. We've been out there an hour, right? I'm thinking, oh, here we go, great. He's got my suit on. He's gonna get, we're going to get that torn to bits now. We're going to get a good hiding from the old bill. They're going to bring out more coppers than we can handle, you know? Yeah. And that's it, he don't want to talk about it then <coughs> after that. And that's it, he said. So no yeah. problem, walk around the yard. No more discussion, just getting ready for the tear up with, with the coppers. I think well, they've been pretty good to us. They ain't given us no grief, you know. How's it going to be from here on in now? Mm. The door's opened. There's all a sea of coppers there. Fucking more coppers than you can imagine. Well, I've had enough now, he says. <laughs> <laughs> and walks in. Still ended. And he still <laughs> didn't tell me to change his mind. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, here we go, pleading now, like. Yeah. Well, I've had enough now anyway, he says. And just walks off. Don't even say, come on. Well, tell me what he's going to do. So them sort of times, like, at the time, gosh, you you're, you're like, bang, 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 yeah. up there. You're drilling yeah. And now I can ask, you can laugh about them things now, yeah. find some humour in some terrible times. But, um, yeah, I went to prison for that. I got out. I, went, I got found guilty, I had two trials, I got bail for that crime. The police were caught lying, changing the descriptions and things like that, saying whatever the witnesses said, they altered yeah. what the witnesses said. That came about. Uh, there was meeting the witnesses at the end of their, one witness in particular at the end of their road, getting them to rewrite a statement, and it all came out at trial. A uh, uh, 6-1 committal, you might remember that. It's yeah, the old yeah, style, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. The adult committals and everything. Was... Yeah, but I didn't mind that because I got bail. Yeah. And... Uh, Got bail. Marcus was still on bail, actually, and he turned up to court every day in a different disguise. He had his hair centre parting. One day he'd have curtains. Another day he'd have it brushed back. He'd come up dressed like a bleeding cat burglar once. He had the black and white T-shirt and the black jeans on. Another day he came down like Mr. T. He had a ring on every finger. He bought all my mate's gold. He had his own more chains on than Mr. T. And the judge used to come, and everyone was looking at the door like that, waiting to see what he came in like. He thought, well, if I go to court dressed differently each day, they ain't going to be able to recognise me, he says, yeah. or, or put me. Anyway, this is all things like that you can laugh about in the day, can't you? So I got bail then. Went up on trial twice. Second time I went up for trial. The jury was out. It was very hot in the, in May that year. And I'll never forget it. They was being put into a hotel again. And they came on a Friday night. So they'd been put into a hotel on a Saturday. And then they went out. And they came back with a guilty. Almost immediately. So I've gone downstairs to confer with my barrister and we get called back upstairs. The jury have come back in and they've got uh, something to tell the judge. And there's some ladies were crying and the blokes were, obviously some of them we can clearly see they weren't very happy. Mm. They told the judge they'd made a wrong decision. And the judge said, I've got to take your first answer. And I, I know, I've said this before, I stood up and said, listen, it ain't a game show. 
And uh, I've got two years, two years, two years, and two years to run uh, concurrently. Now, I was expecting to get an eight to a ten anyway, is what my barrister said. But the judge turned <coughs> around and said, like you did, Billy. He said, you took the law into your own hands. He said, you know, you just do a vigilante, but you took the law into your own hands. So, and it came out that the police had been approached twice to rectify the matter and failed. So, he gave me two years and I'd done six months remand already. So, I had 16 months to do. And I said, he said, I know there's going to be an immediate appeal. I thought, I don't want to go up on appeal. I've done it. I never give evidence. I just sat in the dock and blah, blah, blah. Got found guilty. I'm happy with that. Went away and I was out bleeding 14 and a half months. Later, I got bail. Uh, not bail, I got parole. Mm. For a kidnapping. I'll never forget on the parole hearing, they said, uh, would you do it again? I went, yes. But you know, you're young. You're still not thinking like an adult, really, yeah, are you? Yeah, no, you've got an air of arrogance as well. At that age, haven't you? Y yeah, and you still... You things, don't they? And you feel that you're not so much the Robin Hood, but, uh, yeah, that's... Well, what I did was right. Righteous, yeah, you're on the righteous, righteous path, yeah. And uh, I mean, it still might be considered righteous now, but in the terms, in the eyes of the law, you have to yeah. think what you are doing is still law breaking. You're still committing an act of crime and it's violence. So if we didn't have the police in this country, Billy, you yeah. know it'd be anarchy, wouldn't it? No, oh, definitely, yeah. You've yeah. got to have the police in this country, because you know, yeah. you've got to have that, haven't you? The first thing that, that you know, when it goes off, like, even like screws as well, people. It's us, us against them. But I always, you know, as I got older and more mature, I realised that, you know, it was kicking off. When that bell went, you know, you'd want them there. You know, the fear, you know, if you were like getting them, you were, you, you were like on demand or you were overwhelmed with things, you know, it's important to... You think about the ones that, uh, I've seen prison change over the years, Billy, yeah, okay? Me too, yeah. Kev, yeah, you're right. Not for the better. Exactly, yeah. Young, younger screws, Im immature, uh, inexperienced. No money. They don't get no, paid the right no. money. Shite, wages, inexperienced. Like, there's a lot. There's a lot of contributing factors that lead to people or screws bringing drugs and. And it's the it's the it's the generation now. Mm. I know for a fact when I went away, you had the the Brinks Matt robbery crew. They was yeah. in there. Uh, Tony White and Johnny Schultz and. Mickey McAvoy and so on and so forth, okay? And there's many other criminals like Kenny Collins, Hatton Garden Burglar. Um, there was a, uh, a code of conduct there and uh, camaraderie amongst your fellow interns. Now they're coming in your cells and robbing you for your trainers or your bleeding thing box, whatever they have. I don't know, I didn't have a telly for 20 years, so. Xbox. Xbox, that's it. Oh, I'll give you a fucking box. You want to come in my cell? I'll try and nick my trainers. All right, I've had people come in my cells with knives and I said, really? In the kitchen, for instance, a fella come in and I said, yeah, put that knife away, I'll take it off you and fucking stick it back up your ass." And as it happens, he did, whatever went on, went on there. But our times have changed for an hour was away. My first sentence, my long one. And to now, I mean, I hardly came out of my cell when I got recalled recently. Yeah. I thought, just, I don't want to be out here. No, it's, uh, I know exactly what you're talking about, Kevin. It's, uh, it's a different generation now. It's like, you know, I didn't, it's, it's like a drug-induced paranoia, you know, with, with people that on the landings, you can't even look at anyone else. I think, look at Alice, you're going off here. You know, that was the feelings I used to, you know, I'm, like, I'm, the older I got and the younger they were, the more I felt, oh, you know, it's, it's just a bit more, it's not for me. You just don't want it, do you? No, no. Don't want it. And, and this, is, this is why I like to do what I do with the young kids as well. You know, give them a bit of guidance. You know, I know my experience. You know, I can't let my experience, you know, cloud my judgments in their pathway and, and what they want to do. But I can at least share a little bit of, like, what was and what is on offer. Yeah. I agree with you there. Give them a bit of light. I don't agree with portraying criminals as heroes. No, no, definitely not. No, it's not something to glamorise. I, I, I make sure, you know, I went away. And it was all, like, it wasn't, it was the consequences of my behaviour. It was the consequences, like you said, Kev. You know when you were talking about like, like whether it was righteous in your eyes or whether it was wrong in the eyes of the law. Mm. You know, at that time you felt it was right. You were protecting someone. You weren't doing it. You know, did it for no other reason. No, no, no. Right, protecting other people. Yeah, that's you know, right. Vulnerable. Yeah, a rebel. I was like that a rebel without a cause. You know, I just sort of always favoured the underdog, mate. Um, yeah, exactly. And get, me, and get myself in a lot of trouble for it. 
Shockingly, I can identify with that. Do you know who my hero is in films? John Wayne. Oh, yeah. John Wayne. He's always fought for the underdog, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. And I, in my book there, Fitted Up and Fighting Back, I say, and I, if it weren't for the John Waynes in the world, it'd be a, a terrible place. Yeah. Because there's lots of people out there that set matters straight that others can't against the ones that are going around doing things that they shouldn't be doing to people, yeah. whether it's strong-arming them or whatever. Yeah, and intimidating and bullying, like, the less vulnerable for the, yeah. no other reason than, you know, like, thinking of the big man. But she's, you know, I've come across that in, in a lot of establishments, which, you know, I've got myself in a lot of trouble for, like, backing other people up as well. <laughs> that is what I said. If you're, if you're well-known or people like you, you've got a lot of problems. Yeah. And uh, I, when I got sentenced for the, uh, the murderer... I see things differently because I went in the game still headstrong with the attitude that what's right is right, what's wrong is wrong and, you know, all that and don't talk to him if there's a smell about him and all things like that. So I see that people were doing what they weren't meant to be, to do. Um, there was still a lot of the old school ways in there, of course, but it was changing, changing rapidly. So in 2006, yeah. I see a massive change in 10 years in the prison system and I see all the old school going home and the new era coming in with their new ways of robbing each other. Do you know, back in the day, if you robbed somebody for their drugs, like drugs parcel outside of puff or cocaine, or whatever, that was considered like, listen, that ain't the way to go forward. Yeah. You know, but now it's it's just, that is what Arthur coming to prison for, yeah. robbing other drug dealers. That isn't putting a bit of time together and going to work and working out how to break into a bank and cutting the alarm off or, you know, something like that. Putting a bit of graft and a bit of thought pattern. Because most criminals of the old days were clever. So if they put the same effort into working, they'd have been a lot richer, a lot quicker, I believe, because mm. I've always heard fantastically well working. So I went away. You went away in there, was it 1996? I got 95 January. 95, you were, you were getting a life sentence in 1995. How old yeah. was you, Kev? 27. 27, wow. So, you're a young man, you're 27. I read a little bit about um, your backstory. It was, you know, a contact killing. Yeah. But further down the line, the police officer that arrested you at the time was also known to be corrupt. That's right. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about that, Kev, because we need to get into that. So Detective Spackman, <coughs> uh, he was brought into the operation for the murder of Robert McGill. I got arrested for contract killing. At the time, I didn't realise what was going on behind the scenes, but originally, previously to that, two people were arrested called Roger Vincent and David Smith. They'd been arrested by Spackman a number of times before, and he was there, then became their police handler. And I've got all the documentation to confirm that and so on and so forth. Legal documents and all, not stuff that, uh, you know, have been disclosed to me through the criminal justice yeah. system. And so I got arrested for contract killing. And I thought, oh gosh, what's going on here? There's a lot's gone on in the book which sets it out. And that book's been out a year now. And there's been no uh, um, court cases or... Uh, orders telling me that any of the material in there is false because it, it hasn't, you know, it's genuine. So yeah. um, I got arrested for the contract killing and I was sent into Belmarsh Special Secure Unit. I was then made triple category A and for those who don't realise that, that's, you know, you're not coming into contact with people, you're uh, permanently closed visits, you're checked every half an hour behind your door. Uh, I realised that I was forever doing that, looking at my door when I came off the category A 16 years later because you're forever being checked and you don't realise. And then, of course, you only get checked twice a day in the 24 hours when you're Cat B, but you're still doing that because it just becomes habit, you know, like mm. if you've got a tick. Um, the bank copper got nicked after I was convicted in 2002. He stole £160,000 from the police force and he, a very complicated fraud he did in deception. But I always said that he was bent. Yeah. As in corrupt. So at the time, I didn't realise that Roger Vincent was having confidential chats with the bank, the corrupt police officer, whereby he was naming me. And that's all in the book, word for word, verbatim, and the documents are in there, word for word, shows 
that he requested to speak to the police on a confidential basis, whereby he would put forward the names of the people that committed the murder, how much they got paid, and he named me for another two murders. So he put me up for three. So in the eyes of the police, with the bent copper and this Roger Vincent, they've not only put me forward for the murder of Robert McGill, they've put me forward for the murder of two others that haven't been solved. And in their eyes, they were high-profile murders. I'm sitting there in the, in, uh, on remand at the time in the unit thinking, what is going on here? I had no idea. Because I never found out about what I've just told you until 1999, some years after I was convicted. Yeah. By which time, Roger Vincent's swanned off down the road, got on with his life, and I'm doing birth for something that they was originally arrested for. And then, of course, years later, it's coming out. It's, you get, it's a bit like the piecemeal. Bit by bit, you'll find out what's gone on behind the scenes. And I found out, like I say, I've got the confidential chats. I've got his custody record where he's asked to speak to the police on a confidential basis without his solicitor being informed or present. And he signs it five times. So it's a legal document. It's not yeah. something I've made, you know, manufactured. So when all this started come to, coming to light, I realised then I never stood a chance. At all, that I was going to prison. So Kenny Collins at the time for the Hatton Garden, he was on the mind in the in unit with me for passports. And he he used to have Ralph Hines. Ralph Hines was the Quatrins solicitor back in the day. And Ralph was alive then. And Ralph had come up to visit Kenny and he's gone, the deal's done, he said, your pal's going away. Of course, Kenny couldn't tell me at the time. He said, fucking hell, like, if I told you... <laughs> bless you you was going away he said it, God knows what would have happened like, yeah. so he said we just try to work through the case get your head right for the trial because I was spending a lot of time in the blocks at the time for various fighting with screws and that you know yeah. but bully boys are the ones I eat yeah. with you know funny enough no, not I mean, deep, people who didn't deserve a good, good hiding people who was trying to intimidate me and I just used to go bang them fucking hit them and that was it I was in the block then bent up in a strip cell no clothes on freezing my tits off but you learn as you get a bit older, didn't you? <laughs> so Kenny come and told me I was going away. And sure enough, I went away. Vincent was dis uh, acquitted by the judge's direction. And then I often thought, how can you be acquitted by the judge's direction? If you're nicked with me, he was being kept in different prisons up and down the country. Again, the IOA at the time said to me, Kevin, because I was on a triple category, I was with the boys who escaped out of Whitemore yeah. Special Secure Unit at an armed shootout with Andy Russell. And they said, it's not right, Kevin. Your code D's been kept up and down the country away from you. That stinks. It's never a good sign. So lo and behold, I then obtained, it's in the book, his her history sheets. And it says, special visit on freeze landing. Police interview went well, no problems. And all stuff like this, you know. And another pal of mine, Tony Daniels, he see the old Bill in his cell in the scrubs, in that Vincent cell talking to him and going through paperwork and then all this came around and I thought never stood a chance yeah. so if I get nicked with you Billy and we're done what's called as a joint enterprise if I'm guilty you're guilty if you're not guilty I'm not guilty if you're at the scene with me and we're both at the scene yeah. so if you ain't at the scene I ain't at the scene so if you or Roger Vincent should I say is discussing the, the murder and giving the police information about the murder and other murders then surely the jury should have been told about that. And then Vincent should have been asked, how come he knows so much about the murder? Mm. Well, none of that information was disclosed to him until 1999. Further to that, the fellow that got caught with a car, he turned around and said, Roger Vincent and David Smith gave him this car and asked me to destroy it. I never got those statements until 2007. They weren't disclosed to me. Because if they'd have been disclosed to me, the jury would have said, well, hold on a minute. It's 12 years later. 12 years later. They're saying Roger Vincent and David Smith gave this fellow the car to burn it. Yeah. Well, he'd have been asked questions like that and a wealth of other questions, Billy, and he never was. Yeah. So I learned pretty quickly after I was convicted that something wasn't right. I realised I wasn't getting all the paperwork in the case. And subsequently, the BBC covered my case, The Guardian number of journalists, Sally Chidsoy, Duncan Campbell, Nick Hopkins, Jamie Doward, and I could go on and on and on. Um, Private Eye magazine uh, covered it extensively. And they're covering bits and pieces of the... And I've had police officers come forward and say, Kevin Lane's innocent, he's been fitted up. 
we've seen statements that have been written out by Spackman, the bent copper, and and getting them and signing them as a matter of truth and putting them before the judge. And still, still, I was kept in prison. So when he got nicked for the, the fraud, Spackman, he was uh, writing out statements as a matter of truth, going down to birth, deaths and births office and getting certificates and driving licenses and all sorts of stuff to get this money out of the police, uh, the police funds. Yeah. So it shows what he was capable of in his own case. He could have done it in mine, which he did do it in mine. Mm. So I got convicted, went away, finally got off the book when some documents were sent to my solicitor from an anonymous source. And I'll never forget it, the director of the prison service was waiting outside my cell in Franklin. And he came up to me and he said, is that right, what we've heard about this paperwork? I said, yeah, it is. He said, well, I come to tell you I've put something in place in relation to Category A. Bang, one, I passed down Grady 16 days later. Chucked out of the prison service, straight out of the uh, HMP service into a private system, Ryo I went to at the time, which is now uh, uh, for paedophiles. Mm. But at the time, it was a good nick. Different. Different way of doing your time, Billy. Yeah, unbelievable. Victorian, we like you. You're used to Victorian <laughs> establishments, and then all of a sudden you're in this new, these new bills. New bills. So I went to yeah, and you know, Freeview TV. Yeah. <laughs> they were watching Babe Station every night, and they the boys. You know what I mean? Fucking unbelievable. I thought I'd better have a TV for a little while. <laughs> so and and like nice food. Hash, egg and bacon and all that on a Saturday and stuff. Yeah, oh, it's different, a it? this, you know? <laughs> so I got chucked out of the system, finally got released uh, as a DCAT and I went up on appeal. So on the appeal, Lord Chief Justice Rafferty stepped into my appeal. Well, my the prosecutor that convicted me was a gentleman named Kalisha and he passed away a month after I was convicted. Mm. And you could see he was ill. He had a big tumour on his, on his brain and that, and he passed away. But I knew it, that it was, he wasn't going to last long and that allowed him to say things in the trial she shouldn't have said and act in a way that was never going to be accountable for. But what's come around in the last year is, come about, shall I say, is that Rafferty was at his side of his bed in the hospice as he's dying and they agreed to set up a, uh, a charity called the Kalisha Trust, Kalisha Foundation. Mm where they would assist barristers during their training. Where do you think these barristers went to work? Only the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which was a government body set up to oversee uh, wrongful convictions. So my case went to the CCRC three times. I've only just found this out in the last year, like I say, that the barristers in there are in there under the Kalisha Trust. They're looking at my paperwork they're being funded by the Kalisha Trust from the person who obviously won his conviction against me. They're never going to overturn it, are they? Never. So then when I go up with my appeal, Rafferty steps in to sit on my bench two weeks before it goes up and fobbed me off, sent me away. Then that's a conflict of interest, surely. And in anybody's eyes, they must say, well, he never stood a bleeding chance. And I, that's what I've had all the way through. Knockback after knockback. And you look at the Guildford 4, the Birmingham 6, and the Bridgewater 3. Five or six appeals before they turn around and say, yeah, we made a mistake, we got it wrong. Yeah. What is it with the criminal justice system in this country that they just won't accept that they fitted you up or something? You've got to get a, a, a ridiculous amount of years out of you before they say, yeah, let him go. Yeah. And, you know, and in the meantime, you continuously recall to prison because you've got a life license around your neck. So it's a constant noose around your neck that can be tightened someone makes a phone call or if you do something wrong for I went away recently for common assault and that I went away where someone was kicking and punching my car it's my ex-girlfriend and she was drunk really drunk and nicked my keys my house keys my car keys my wallet and put them in my freeze in her freezer to stop me going home because at the time I had a probation officer that was being a, would never let me stay there so yeah. um, I just have to drive home 50 miles a time so she hid the keys Finally got the keys. But in the meantime, I'm putting her back indoors on a number of occasions. On the fifth occasion, half six the next morning, when I found my keys, I threw her. But she'd run up and down. I had a new Range Rover at the time, a nice one, it was autobiography sport, it was fully loaded, it was fucking TVs and fridges in it. I thought, bloody hell, like, I'll tell you what, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted one, I've got uh, one now, I work hard for uh, it, you know. So uh, she's caused two grand's worth of damage on the car, right? And I threw her. I went away for 14 and a half months for that. For yeah, throwing her. Yeah. 
Okay. So how are you later? Fourteen and a half months because I'm a life license. Now anybody else would have said if I didn't have that contract killer's uh, life, uh, title on me, they'd have gone. They would have charged her for holding me captive, or you know, keeping my my possessions, which were prevented me from going home. And she would have got charged for, and it was all on camera as well. Yeah. What I'm telling you, I've got footage of. So, like I say, it's not like even when she did that to my car, I put my arms around and I put her back indoors. Yeah, come out of the car, rip my number plate off my car, stop me driving home, all that stuff, right? You'd think, bleeding now, it's provocation, extreme provocation. He's lost it finally. It's six thirty the next morning, and for her. So no, fourteen and a half months I've got for that. Got out. Two months later, I recalled again for going to two areas that I was told are in Hertfordshire. Subsequently, it's been proven they weren't Hertfordshire, they were in Middlesex. I had a tag on me as well that I, they fitted a 40 uh, tag on my ankle. And I'm not a repeat offender for drugs. I've been out five years, by the way, before yeah. I went back to prison for common assault. I uh, had a successful business, so I employed people. I turned over three and a half million pound in one of my businesses you know, in a few years. That's not bad money. Uh, as well as the other one to turn over a significant amount. That I set up from nothing and worked hard. So did I deserve to go to prison? No, I don't think I did. Because if I didn't have a life license around my neck... You wouldn't have went, no? Never would have gone, no. okay? Not for that, that, not for that length of time either. That length of time. So I changed probation officers. For diff not, I didn't change it. The, the prison changed the, the, the system changed it. I get a new probation office, a new probation officer. I get recalled again for going to Pinner and Northwood which he said was in Hertfordshire. I'm not allowed to go into Hertfordshire. I can drive through it, but I'm not allowed to go into it and reside or stay there. Unless mm. I get permission. Fitted a 40 tag. I reported that tag being 40. It was reported being 40 the day they fitted it, the fitters, and for not being in contact with my probation officer. And yet I had phone records to show that I'd been phoning and staying in contact, as well as reporting every week. So it took four months, another four months, for the Secretary of State to investigate my second recall before they said, get him out, we've made a terrible mistake. He hasn't done a single thing wrong. So in total, I've done 18 and a half months out of the last 20, nearly one months, back in prison, where I wouldn't have been there if I wasn't alive for based on this, this wrongful conviction. And for all those people that are watching this, if they go mm. on the uh, Fitted Up and Fighting Back website, you'll see a panorama documentary and the Panorama documentary is, was conducted in relation to the, some of the forensic issues in my case. So at the time of my trial, the jury were told that there was a fingerprint on a black bag, a handprint. Vincent's prints were all over the car as well. And so a number of other people's. That was supposedly used in the murder, which has now been proven it wasn't used in the murder at all. And there's, there's the, the whole story's in the in there, and it's factual because it's come from the police records. Yeah. But in the boot of this car, there was a black bag. The police turned around and told the jury that on that bag there's a line, and that that line was consistent with me gripping a Mossberg pump-action shotgun inside that bag. The deceased was killed with a Mossberg pump action. That's what they told the jury. So the jury are thinking he was killed by a Mossberg pump action. Lane's gripping a Mossberg pump action inside that bag. And there's also one single particle of firearm residue inside that bag where a spent gun or ammunition has been inside that bag. Well, Bill, you know and I both know, if a gun had been in that bag, based on what we all see on TV and such now and what you learn over the years, there'd be thousands of particles inside that bag, not one particle. So the Panorama have conducted a number of investigations through the City of uh, West uh, City Police, Tracy Alexandra, and a number of other specialists, and they said it was absolute rubbish. Should never have been used to convict me. But if you're sitting in the, in the jury and you're told that I've gripped a gun in a bag and there's been ammunition or a gun in that bag, oh, that's damning, isn't it? Mm. So I'm now due to go back again to the Criminal Cases Review Commission for the fourth time and submit my reasons to them as well why I should never have been convicted because you cannot guess what a jury member will make of any particular piece of evidence. So they call it Pendleton. So I can't second guess what you think of anything, whether you thought it was good or bad. And on that basis alone, I'm saying my conviction is unsafe. Without a wealth of other material, the confidential chats that I should have been told about, 
all the other facts in the case where uh, witnesses' descriptions would have been altered from not fitting me to fitting me. And it's all in the book. It's all factual. It's not like I'm making it up. Yeah. So if a witness <clears throat> turns around and says uh, X, Y, and Z, and it takes a case away from me in their statement, but by the time it comes to trial, it's been made to be A, B, and C, and fitting me, that came about after the trial. So it shows that there's been tampering of evidence from, like I say, not fitting me to fitting me, mm. falsified evidence in the trial, witness statements withheld saying that Roger Vincent and David Smith gave this gentleman a car who had burned it, Vincent admitting that he was paid to kill McGill, that he was going around saying he, uh, him and Smith are Ronnie and Reggie. And I've always said, I wonder which one was Ronnie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and so on and so forth and that's all in the book I mean, let me just find something in here for you and I want to put this up to the camera so during the remand uh, when, when Roger Vincent gets arrested for this there we go arrested for this murder yeah. he engages in these confidential chats with the police and the confidential chats were a little way up here okay here they are there is confidential chats and I'm going to read a little bit for the viewers. And this will give you some meat on the bones. So, following the charging of Roger Allen Vincent with being concerned in the murder of Robert McGill, I spoke confidentially with Mr. Vincent at his request. And I've got this all signed in his custody record as well, by the way. He reaffirmed that he had not been present when McGill was shot and was shocked that he had been charged with the offence. He wanted to do a deal whereby his charge would be dropped in return, he said he would supply, through his solicitor, a statement accounting for his prints being in the BMW. After, and he would supply, on a confidential basis, details of the two persons responsible for the murder. The persons who put them up for it, including how much was paid. He stated that it had in fact been paid to kill McGill, and that they were responsible for another one whereby, it's blanked out, had been killed. So that's two. From the limited details he gave, it was clear that he referred to the murder being investigated in Surrey. So, so that's the second murder. He said that the killers had been paid. That's blanked out again. He intimated that, I can't mention that name because I haven't got the permission of these people to mention their name, but he's mentioning a family. He says that uh, family, including blah, 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 had had an involvement. And they hadn't. It's absolute rubbish. But in the eyes of the police, he's putting his family forward. It was big in their eyes. He stated that a thorough police investigation would not everyone involved, with the exception of someone who referred to, I can't mention that gentleman's name again, he's dead, mm. okay, and again, he was a well-known figure but had nothing to do with it, but if you're throwing in well-named names into the pot, in the eyes of the police, they think they've won the bleeding jackpot, who did not get his hands dirty. So, Vincent can engage in confidential chats. Now, for the camera, can you hold it up to the camera there, Bill, closer? Billy, so you can get his face. Now that's Roger Vincent and his confidential chats. And he's just had his photograph taken after those confidential chats. Doesn't he look extremely happy considering he's arrested on a murder charge? Mm. Unbelievable. And that all this information is in the book. And it's a, I mean, all of the expendables are reading on set at the moment. And we've had Princess. Uh, Diana's autobiography for Purchase It and Tom Cruise's and uh, John Bolson of Netflix and so on and so forth right across the board I've got that yeah fitted up and fighting back and it's doing really well and people are saying there's book clubs of 100,000 people they said best book they've had all year and I'm really pleased it's got 4.9 on Amazon brilliant so you know it's doing really well see what I'm listening what I'm hearing Kev right because I'm listening to it like, like everything you've shared and you're not, you know, you know, you you don't claim to be Mother Teresa, right? You you've made mistakes, but you sort of stood up to the, the mark and accepted it. It's yeah. like, for example, when you talk about the kidnapping earlier on, and the jury came back and said we made a mistake, and you thought, you know what? The reality is, if I've been nicked for it, I'll accept it. I'll take the consequences. But you feel, I can see how strongly you feel against this because you've shared that sentence. Right, and I know because I've sat in front of Raymond Gilby. Yeah, I've done a podcast with Ray. Yeah, Ray was like thirty something odd years. Yeah, he did. Right? Yeah. And he claimed, you know, that that he had nothing to do with this crime. Yeah. And I, to be fair, Kev, I sat and I listened and I believed him. 
right? I believed him. I think, why would you go through all that? Go through all that time and still get out and want to prove your innocence. Treat yourself, you could just go, okay, yeah, moving on. Right, it's it happened, but, you know, I can see how strongly you feel about this. And there's a lot of evidence. And I know from back in the day, especially the 90s, the early 90s, when I was in the, the prison establishments and it was all the set of depths and everything was written down and it was all different, you know. Um, how easy it was for the law to manipulate a lot of stuff. It's unbelievable the way they manipulate with whole statements. So you've got... Yeah, very... You know, yeah. I, I, I remember getting arrested by police and they're going to me, what colour screwdrivers you want? Right? And I'm like, what? And then getting charged with an offence. I hadn't done nothing. I just sat outside. You know, I was sat outside. I think it was a, um, a drug service. I was a young kid. I wanted a bit of help and I sat there. And they pulled up these police and went, bang. Like, so I'm like, busy putting guns in my mouth. I've yeah. said this to, 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 to police previously we were at meetings with and he said you know that, that stuff shouldn't happen you know it wouldn't happen in this day and age he Bloody said well, you know it did happen I had a gun put in my mouth when I was what 17 years old Kev right in the back of a police car right and they were asking me who was doing this crime who was doing it. I had no idea what they were going on about they were just just, just these tactics it was the OSD back then Operation yeah, yeah. Support Division that's right yeah yeah they were, it's the Matrix now and it's the, the, Operation the, Support Group weren't yeah, it yeah the, the, in Liverpool there was the OSD were, the, uh. the odds and sods they were Bastards, you know what I mean? Back in the day, you know, and I don't see. I understand that I was, um, I was, there was, a, there was a lot of like consequences for for the behaviour I was, you know, I was portraying. I was behaving fucking, you yeah, know. yeah. I was obviously in that circle, yeah. You know, and I don't claim to go. Yeah, I was, I was, but yeah, I didn't deserve to be stitched up in in some of these fucking places. For, I can't believe it. They not when I'm asking for help. You know what I mean? They take people off the streets. Because you're, you know, you are topical at the time. Yeah. You're in their eyes. Uh, people want you off the street. Yeah. And so they take you off the bleeding street and do the most notorious things to you. Fit you up and send you to prison for a number of years. And say, well, hopefully you might not even come out. And they rely on you getting convicted and the, the wheels of justice turn very slowly. Yeah. So, and trying to obtain information, it's not transparent. Yeah. So you, it takes years and years and years before you obtain the information that shows that you are innocent and that you've been fitted up. I mean, Spackman, not only was a disclosure officer in my case, he was the, the uh, exhibits officer uh, in disclosing the material. We had to contact him for those, the disclosure, we had to contact Officer uh, Spackman for everything in the mm. case. And he was corrupt. Then he ended up going to jail, didn't he? Four years. Yeah, so. Four years he went to prison for. 165 uh, 60 grand, he Nick from the police force. So there was definitely there was a definitely a lot of uh, a lot of badness in him prior to. He nicked me years earlier for yeah. ringing cars. All right, I was buying stolen cars and uh, damaged vehicles and Porsches and stuff like that when I was a young man. And he nicked me with a set of lads that were doing it, but I weren't doing it with them. And I just bought another house. Actually, I was 21 at the time. And I'd bought a lovely house in Ickenham where Lamar actually lived down this road. It was a nice house. I just had a brand new extension put on the front of the house and brick walls and iron railings and stuff. But I was working as well, Billy. Yeah. I want to make that quite clear. At the time I was working, uh, I might have been selling, well, doing mortgages actually, buying and selling houses. I was buying a house a month and flipping it and taking a few quid out of it. Uh, quite lucrative. Yeah. So he come, and I remember him looking around the house but I didn't know at the time, when I got nicked for the murder, I think, oh, I know that name's Spackman, I know that name's Spackman, and it was him. So when I got nicked for the ring and the cars, he came to the cells and he says, uh, I'll have you one day, Lane, he says, one day. And uh, he said something to me and I jumped up off the bed, like, full of testosterone, and you're mm, a young yeah. boy, like, you've got a pair of bollocks on you <laughs> yeah. like that and you're carrying around in a wheelbarrow, aren't you? Yeah. So you thought you fight the world, so he jumped up and uh, he slammed the door and then it, the light bulb came on when I got nicked from the mouth, I thought, Spackman. Yeah. I know him. And then it came out, fitted me up. The bastard. All these years later. But I'm I'm hoping now that the conviction's going to be uh, squashed based yeah. on the Panorama programme and much more as well, by the way. I'm not just going to go into the full details, but yeah, no. I've got a lot more information that has come to light that's going to go before. And we'll see what they make of it this time. But just... 
what I will say about that, the CCRC quickly, is that at the time of one of my reviews, I wrote to the CCRC and I said, can you please tell me if there's any police officers or anybody that works in the CCRC that knew the police officers involved in my case? And they wrote back to me and said, it was inevitable that staff within the CCRC knew the police officers involved in my case or knew someone who knew them. But this would not cause the impartial observer to form the view of bias. What do you think? Of course it's biased. One of the 14 commissioners in the CCRC was only the, the chief constable of police at the time of my arrest of Hertfordshire. You know, the head man. Yeah. And he's now one of the, the, the CCRC members. And they don't think, see that as being biased either. No. I never stood a bloody chance. But, you know, <sighs> keep throwing them punches. One will land, as they say. Yeah, that's it. I, I think I've landed. Asked uh, Mr. Bellew. I think I've landed a big white. <laughs> <laughs> Followed by a swift left hook. <laughs> so where can you get this book, Kev? Get it on the website, Fit It Up and Fighting Back. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, Waterstones, you've just accepted us. I mean, that's a great thing, Waterstones. Brilliant. Um, Brilliant. So that'll be on in the shops there soon. Yeah. They're just reviewing the book. They've accepted it online already. So it's being sold online. So you're assuming to get it in all shops or on all platforms. On your website, so I'll put all this stuff in the description, Kev, as well. Yes, so please. People, um, people can find it pretty quick. Um, I always say this at the end of every podcast, right? It's. Um, I was hoping you'd keep going. I like this conversation. <laughs> is there any? Um, I know you. I know you're on a, for time as well. You've, I'm okay. Go on. Got is there any um, pearls of wisdom? Anything you'd say to a young Kevin Lane coming through the doors of life? What would you say to him? now? do not get involved in crime. Go to work, be happy, enjoy your life. Because I'm telling you now, you go to prison, they are shark-infested waters, people circling you, looking for your weakest opportunity. And it is the king of the jungle in there. And if you are one of the weaker members in there, you will suffer at some point. And it doesn't matter, it isn't man against man in there now, it's one man against many, and yeah. that is how they fought. Stay away from crime. I'm telling you now, go to work and be happy. Because all that rubbish like... Uh, uh, angels with dirty faces. Do you remember that James yeah, Cagney yeah, yeah. crying? So he put the children off, yeah. thinking being a gangster was good. Well, it ain't bleeding good because you do lots of porridge. Do not pick a gun up. Do not pick a knife up. It is not big. What's big about picking a knife up? Yeah, he just recently had a young twelve-year-old girl stabbed to death. Yeah, oh, sad. By a fourteen-year-old boy in. Um, I heard it on the news. In Liverpool City Centre. You know, this, 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 it's what the, the society's coming to. We, you know, you, you've got to keep your kids at home because you, you can't even enjoy what's on offer then. Do you know... Uh, in the community? Still these silly knives that they get sold in shops. Ban them. Yeah. What is the purpose and use of those knives? If you're a hunter, you have a hunter's knife, but you have a licence for it. Why should they be sold willy-nilly? Yeah. I agree. The, and you see some of these Bowie knives and such and the flick knives and that. From Rambo knives, the lot. Rambo knives, that's it, Rambo knives. Yeah. Why are they made? Who are they made for? Why and what for, yeah. Why and what for? Exactly that. They're made and distributed to cause mayhem and harm. It's disgusting. And they're put in hands of people who think they're God when they get it in there. Whoa, look what I've got. Yeah. Now I'm going to go and use it. So is that what they're manufacturing these things for? For our children... Young children, daughters and nieces and nephews and sons to go out and get killed or be killed by them. So I'm saying to all these young kids who go to work, get a trade and have children and be proud mums and dads of your uh, uh, sometime. Not sitting in a concrete cell looking at the ceiling, thinking I can only come out of that cell door when it's open. Yeah. I can only see my family when they're allowed to come in and see me. And oh, by the way, all you young lads who think you're as horny as they come. The only sex you'll be getting was with another inmate. <laughs> so don't. And if that's what you like, then get in there. <laughs> and with that, Kev, thank you very Billy, much. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Billy. Been thank you pleasure. very much. Thank you.